what's up, everybody? Great to see you guys. I want to welcome you to week four of our series, Fixer Upper. Let's welcome all our campuses who are with us today. Glad you guys are here. It was great to see so many of you at our workday in Parsippany, uh, painting some planks, staining some board, thousands of feet, in fact, of wood that we're using to build our new church home in Parsippany. Uh, if you're joining us from another campus, first off, welcome. But we're, we're not only thrilled you're part of our church family, we are literally building a permanent broadcast campus in Morris County uh, for you. Uh, what we're doing is supporting all six of our campuses and really with the hopes of launching dozens of new ones in the years to come. And so we asked for your help, and so many of you pitched in. When I see some of the faces uh, from our workday, and you can throw this up on the screen, you'll take a look and you're going to see tons of people from other campuses. All our campuses came together, painting wood, applying stain, rubbing it down. We had fathers working with their kids. We had, uh, you know, young men. We had young families. We had older folks all come out and build God's church together, which was just so inspiring because I think it really shows you, you know, the power of Teamwork. We have a little saying around these parts. Teamwork makes God's what? God's dream work. Yeah. Let me tell you, you won't believe the impact you had. Do you know how many linear feet of wood you guys actually stained? Anyone want to take a guess? It's not 500 feet. It's not 1,000 feet. Try 5,100 feet of wood. Give yourselves a hand. That's incredible. I mean, that is, that is, that's incredible. And again, maybe you're like, I don't, it sounds like a lot, I guess. I don't know. Just to give you perspective, um, think of One World Trade Center. You guys know the Freedom Tower uh, downtown that's gone up. That's now the tallest skyscraper in New York. The Freedom Tower is 1,792 feet from top to bottom. We went and measured it yesterday. And it's uh, 17, about 1,800 feet. You guys stained 5,000 linear feet. So almost two and a half times the size of the Freedom Tower. That's incredible. So thank you. You guys killed it from my heart to yours. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for investing. If you're new to Liquid, we're really a church. We believe everyone has a role. Everybody plays. We don't just leave it to the professionals. We want to like teach our kids like, hey, dirty hands are a sign of serving Jesus. Amen? So it's really exciting for us. Really, our inspiration for this massive project comes from Nehemiah. He is an Old Testament leader who had God's people really undertake this epic building project around 445 BC, they went to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. If you remember, they were ripped down, they were burned, the gates, by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They had kind of stormed Jerusalem, sacked the city, tore down the walls. So God's people, the Jews, completely defenseless, vulnerable to attack from their enemies. Until this ordinary guy named Nehemiah stands up and he's like, you know what? I don't have power, I don't have prestige, but I got passion. And somebody needs to do something about this, and it might as well be me. And so Nehemiah prayed, he planned, and then he traveled a thousand miles from Persia to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of God's city and inspire people to do this. Now, today we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4 just to give you a little taste of this massive renovation process. Because the city was big, and it really took all of God's people working together on this fixer-upper. Here's what it says in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, uh, Eliashab, and just a heads up, there's going to be a lot of weird names today, okay? It's going to sound like Lord of the Rings, like people from Middle Earth, all right? Just let you know. Just work through it. Uh, Eliashab, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work, and what they do? They rebuilt the sheep gate. Now, if you remember last week, Pastor Nithin showed us the gates around Jerusalem. They had names, and he showed us the sheep gate. 
This was the first gate they repaired. This is where they brought the lambs and the sheep that were sacrificed in the temple as an offering to God. And it's significant, right? Jesus, the Lamb of God who was, who was slain to take away the sin of the world. It really shows the priority of salvation and worship, right? They're like, you know what? It's all about first sacrificing God. So they repair the sheep gate. And then it says the fish gate was rebuilt next, okay? So this is where they brought the sushi into the city. That's what the fish gate was, not really. Uh, fish gate is where the fishermen uh, got their catch from the Sea of Galilee, and they would bring it into the market and sell it there. But look what it says. They laid its beams and put its, let's read the words in yellow out loud, doors and bolts and bars in place. This is important. The walls of Jerusalem were a lot thicker than this wall. This is not representative of the wall, okay? And what the only way into the city was through these massive doors. So I want you to imagine they laid the beams and then they would actually hammer in the bolts and the nails and they would, these massive construction projects. This is not like a little home improvement where, you know, we're like, you know, putting in some new tile in the kitchen, okay? And what's cool about it is they didn't hire professional contractors. I mean, these are just like ordinary, everyday people who did this. Take a look at verse 8. It says, Uziel, son of Harhai, or Harambi, or I don't know what that is there. Uh, one of the goldsmiths <laughs> repaired the next section, and Hananiah... One of the what? Perfume makers made repairs next to that. This is probably the best smelling gate, right? Um, to me, it's interesting because the Bible lists the fact that, you know, these guys aren't the contractors. Like, you know, we've got to rip out drywall. Let's get the perfume maker, <laughs> right? It actually took all these kind of, you know, white collar, wealthy people, getting together the blue collar, the poor people, and everybody were rebuilding this wall because it was 145 years that the walls had been tattered and, and, and ripped down. And they all come together. And look what they did. It says, the valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoa. They rebuilt it, put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Now, thousand cubits is about 1,500 linear feet. You guys did 5,000 linear feet, so, you know, we, we killed it. Uh, <laughs> beat the Bible, not really, but I mean, you know, it, it was a massive undertaking because the walls were probably 22 feet tall. What's the point? Notice, it takes teamwork, all of God's people working together to make God's dream work. If you're gonna fix your broken world, you need partners who share your passion, like Pastor Nithin told us last week. It, it's the entire community coming together for the win. And that's why I've asked our, all of our campuses to pray for the next 52 days, really to complete our construction project in Parsippany because God's people rebuilt Jerusalem's wall. It took them 52 days. And we need every person, every family at every campus. We need people praying passionately. We need people, you know, giving generously. We need people sacrificing, uh, you know, to serve so that God gets the glory. Amen. We are hopeful that we're going to move in sometime this August, and we're going to have this amazing celebration as one church praising God for all he's done. But, but, big but here, in the story of Nehemiah, today we're going to get in a little bit of trouble. Uh, because no sooner do God's people start rebuilding their fixer-upper than out come the critics, right? Anytime you start to undertake something for God, people are going to criticize you, the haters come out. And some haters were going to meet here who start throwing shade at Nehemiah and mocking the Israelites. 
Uh, they actually first appear on the scene in chapter 2. Look at this. It says, again, weird names, but work through it. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, what did they do? They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you're doing? Now, who are these guys with funny names? These guys are like, oh, whoa, 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 what do you think you're doing? He's like, I'm putting the wall up. I'm like, no, 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 dude, you, you, you aren't putting any wall up. That ain't happening. Why? These guys were political opponents of Israel. They're like, we keep the Jews feeble, keep the Jews weak, keep them dependent on us. They didn't want the status quo changed. They're like, no, 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 no. What do you think you're doing? He's like, we are rebuilding this after 140 years. They said, no, 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 no. You guys, God's people, have always been dependent on us. And you're not going to threaten our power. You're not going to threaten our financial interests. That is not going to happen. What's the point? Big idea for today. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, whenever you step out to do something great for God, you better expect opposition. There will be haters. There will be critics. There will be spiritual enemies who want to stop the progress you're making. You know, maybe God has spoken through you this series and you've said, you know, baby, this confirms that we are finally getting our family out of debt, right? We're not going to be a slave to MasterCard anymore. We're going to, we're going to, I'm going to get a, you know, a tattoo of Dave Ramsey on my arm. Uh, we're going to put cash in envelopes. And what happens? You're getting a little progress. You do it for two weeks. And then the next day, what happens? Your car breaks down, right? $780 bill. Ah, what is that? Opposition. Uh, if you're trying to rebuild your family, you're a father and you're like, you know what? I'm going to be the spiritual leader that my family needs. You know what, guys? We're going to pray together. We're going to serve together. We're going to join a group. And that's the week your teenager says, you know what? I'm not really sure I believe in God anymore. Opposition. Or if you're a boss uh, or you have, you're a small business owner and you're like, you know what? We're going to run this business God's way. I'm going to teach my employees. They're not all Christians, but I'm going to teach them to work together with trust and integrity and then you, you, you find out that one of your key leaders has been saying behind your back, you know, this is a waste of time. He's out to lunch. We could do this so much quicker with, and make more money and do more if we just cut corners like everybody else. Opposition. It is always surprising to me how many Christians, when they start walking with the Lord, assume, well, now it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. You don't understand the Christian life. The Christian life is not a playground. The Christian life is a battleground. And you have a spiritual enemy, the devil, Satan. It's personal. And what he is never threatened when you're just going along with the status quo, just keep things going the way they are. He's only threatened when you step out to do something right on behalf of God. That's when he attacks. So understanding your spiritual walk, you don't face, if you're like, oh, I don't have really any opposition. You never face opposition when you're doing something wrong. You only face opposition when you're doing something right. When you're stepping up and stepping out to do something big and bold for God, criticism is often confirmation you're on the right track because the enemy is threatened. And you need to expect this, guys, like Nehemiah does here in chapter 4. Look at this. Look at this specific criticism. It says, when Sanballat heard they were rebuilding the wall, he became, what's the word? <clears throat> Angry, greatly incensed. This guy's hot. And he ridiculed the Jews. Here it is. In the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? 
Can they bring the stones back to life from the heaps of rubble burned as they is? Right? Yeah. That accent is ancient Ammonite. Don't laugh, okay? By way of Kentucky. Uh, I, don't, I just like in my head, I have this vision of like, you ever see a construction site and they have like the, the fence there and everything and the guys are working, but people stand there, the sidewalk supervisors are like, oh, I don't know, you kind of missed a little part. Some of you have emailed me about this. You got your, you know, your thing on backwards, Tim, all that, right? Right? Critics. The minute God's people step out here, boom, they are hit with it. It says, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they're building, and listen to this burn. This is a good burn. Even a fox climbing up on that thing and break down their wall of stones, right? They're literally trash-talking the Jews. They're taunting, they're insulting, they're mocking them. They're like, you're weak, you're pathetic, you're so basic. Which leads to our first point, if you're taking notes. If you are a leader and you step up to do something great for God, you expect opposition from the outside first. Satan attacks us in two different ways, and I want to talk about those today, spiritual warfare. Expect outside opposition. I remember when we first uh, started the church, and we, did, we didn't have a building, right? And Liquid, you may not know this if you're new to the church, we actually first met in a tavern. Now, you can connect the dots here. A ministry called Liquid meeting in a tavern, right? Was there criticism? Oh, I see why people go there, Liquid Church, right? They're giving away beer, all right? Funny name, funny place. But we had a vision to reach 20-somethings, unchurched people, and we were like, you know what? To reach people no one's reaching, we're going to do things no one is doing. And the reason we named it Liquid is because Jesus calls himself the living water. So we had a revolution idea. Church should actually be refreshing. And so we started inviting people to the tavern, and they started inviting their friends. And it wasn't good. We weren't serving beer. We were just teaching the Bible. But God put his hand on that, and it started growing. It went from 12 people to 100 people, then 150 people, 200 people. And what was incredible is people are not only learning about Jesus, people are getting saved. They're giving their lives to Christ, right? They're starting to serve their community. And so all of a sudden, Liquid was attracting uh, non-Christians, but then it was also attracting critics, especially online. Because nowadays, Sanballat, he's got a blog, okay? <laughs> Tobiah tweets, Okay. And people started throwing rocks and spreading rumors like, oh, I drove by. And they, there, were, there were motorcycles outside Liquid Church. And we saw people smoking on the front porch. That's actually true. People mocked. They poked fun at us. Listen very carefully to me. Criticism is often confirmation you are on the right track fulfilling God's purpose for your life. Anytime a follower of Jesus steps up to do something significant, you need to expect criticism and discouraging comments because that's how the enemy works. He sends Sanballat and Tobiah, oh, you feeble, weak Jews, you know, that fox will knock your little wall over. I don't know what this, this is for you, what God's calling you to rebuild in your broken world, but I've talked to couples in this church who said, Tim, we feel like God's calling us to be foster parents. I mean, we have kids of our own, but we just, God's put this burden on our heart. And you get excited about it, we prayed about it, and then they go tell their family or their in-laws, and their mother-in-law says, foster parenting, how are you going to do that? You can't even care for the two kids you got like a spiritual gut punch. That's discouraging. That's deflating. Or maybe you have decided to, to leave a, a higher paying job because God's calling you to a, a lower paying job, but it uses your gifts and your talents uh, more carefully. It actually really impacts lots of people and it would make a big difference in this world, but it's not as lucrative as your current job. And you're like, I think I'm, gonna, I'm being called to do this. And so you go tell your friends and they're like, what are you smoking? <laughs> Dude, so you're going to work twice as hard 
and get half the pay? That's just stupid. See, if you want to do something great for God, you have to remember, you never get opposition when you're doing something wrong. You only get opposition if you're doing something right that's a threat to the enemy. And criticism can be confirmation you're on the right track. So here's your challenge. How do you endure it? As a Christ follower, how do you defeat discouragement? How do you handle criticism in your walk with Jesus? Because here's the deal. Jesus was mocked, taunted, threatened by a chorus of critics all throughout his ministry. And yet, he never deviated from his mission of salvation, and he never responded defensively. And this is so important, guys. This is one of the key arts of leadership. Learning how to respond to criticism, not defensively, but graciously, refusing to strike back or defend yourself, but being open to learn whatever you can. I can learn anything from anyone. doesn't matter the, the, the foolish, you know, an email that I get. I'm like, what's in that for me, Lord? Because then I just trust God to handle it. Because we don't answer to man. You answer to God. And that's what Nehemiah does here. Look what he does. Instead of getting upset, ooh, Tobias sent a mean tweet. Instead of getting upset, Nehemiah shows us world-changing leaders who are criticized. They take it to God in prayer. Look at verse 4. Here's Nehemiah. He's always praying. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. And this is such a cool prayer. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Don't cover up their guilt, God, or blot out their sins from your sight, for they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. Notice, this is a pretty savage prayer, right? Like a lot of times, like prayers are like, oh, you know, Lord, bless me, forgive my enemies. Nehemiah's like, God, go get them. <laughs> Nail them, Lord, right? That's literally, it's like this very raw prayer, but he's like, God, they're not just insulting us. They're insulting you. And, he, and I love how raw Nehemiah is in his prayer. He doesn't strike back against his critics. He entrusts them to God. It's even more powerful. He tells God on them. Right? You really want to get your enemy? You tell God on them. I can't tell you how many times I've done this over the last decade of, of, of leading liquid. I get all sorts of, you know, emails and stuff. By now, people have just given up. They're like, well, I'm just going to keep doing what they're doing. But instead of defending myself or our ministry, honestly, or getting defensive or trying to set the record straight, I take it to God in my prayer closet. Like, it's just between me and the Lord. I don't, I literally, I never hit back. I don't send angry emails back. What do I do? I get on my knees and I tell God about them. <laughs> I tell God on them. I say, God, I know this is not warranted. This seems unjust. And honestly, Lord, I can't close their lips. I'd like to close their lips, but I can't. So keep my heart pure, and Daddy, you deal with them. Daddy, you deal with them. This is what Jesus did. When he was struck, when he was accused, he never defended himself. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What's that look like? This is so important. You are never more like Jesus than when you refuse to retaliate and entrust them to the Father. So in a divorce hearing, when things get nasty with your ex, you go tell God on them instead of telling your friends. That's a Christ-like response. Or someone at work treats you unfairly or unjustly. They steal your credit. Instead of striking back, you, you ask God. You say, God, you, you take up my cause. I'm not going to defend myself. That's, I know. <laughs> that was so real. Thank you for that. If you're watching online, guy in the second row was like, whoo, good luck. <laughs> right? That's how Christians spiritually wage war. We don't battle with flesh and blood, but with what? Powers, principalities, rulers of this dark world. And so you don't take revenge. You take it to God, and then you get back to work. 
Look at verse 6. This is so cool. First Nehemiah prays, and then he says, okay, guys, break time's over. Back to the building. Verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with what? All their heart, right? Critics discourage, but great leaders encourage. They literally pour courage into people. And after countering his critics in prayer, Nehemiah inspires the Israelites to give 110% effort. He's like, I want you to work with all your heart. And this is a picture of perseverance. Because any leader uh, worth their salt will tell you, when you step out to do something big and bold for God, typically before the tipping point comes a tap out moment. Where you're like, I think this is too much. I can't do this. See, if you're trying to like start a business or, or, or you're trying to fix a, something in your broken world, okay? There is typically this moment when the rebuilding process, where you're like, oh man, this, gosh, does this wall never end? Like I didn't see, or there's obstacles. We just ran out of nails and now got nothing to work, right? Whatever, or we ran out of money, whatever. And that's the moment where a lot of Christians tap out. I can't do this. This is harder than I thought. And your dream dies on the, des- on the doorstep of your destiny. You actually tap out before the tipping point, not knowing if you had just pushed through the breakthrough is right on the other side. Guys, this is crucial. This is crucial. I'm going to make it so practical. If you are like, I'm rebuilding my marriage, and Tim, it's been good, but now it's getting hard. Don't throw in that towel when the counseling gets hard. You catch your breath, and you get back to work. If you're fighting to stay sober, we have so many people in recovery, and the temptations are there, and now your old friends are like, come on out with us, and all those old patterns are pulling you back. Don't tap out push through, persevere, and get back to work. Amen? That's where we're at with Parsippany. <laughs> That's my burden. We faced dozens of obstacles, uh, critics, things didn't go exactly as we planned, but we will not back down from our God-given mission. Amen? As, amen. Yeah, you can clap for that. Listen, that's why, listen, as long as I'm leader of this church, we're going to persevere. I'm like, we're going to pray for 52 days. We're going to work with all our heart, and God's going to get the glory. We're going to take it to God in prayer, and we're going to get back to work and stay laser-focused. Because those are the one-two punch. It's prayer and perseverance to defeat discouragement. Now, understand something. You may be tenacious, but your enemy is tenacious too. And if he doesn't get you from the outside, he will hit you with inside opposition. This is the other side of spiritual warfare. Look at this. So interesting. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, so they're making progress. They were what? Very angry. So they all plotted together. So now there's a a coalition of critics. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we did what? We prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Do you see how practical Nehemiah is? Some Christians are just like, oh, we just need to pray. He's like, no, you need to post a guard too. <laughs> some people are like, get my sword. I'm going to go, you know, kick some butt. You didn't pray. Nehemiah balances the two here. The Jews are rebuilding the wall. Look at the pattern here in verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, because now discouragement's sinking in. Oh, the strength of the laborers is given out. And there's so much rubble, though. Look at the rest we got to do. We can't possibly rebuild this wall. So they're making progress brick by brick. Board by board, after 145 years, this is a fixer-upper. But don't forget, this is like nothing you and I have ever seen. The walls of their city, here's what it looked like. It looked like a firebomb city in World War II. There's so much rubble, it was overwhelming. 
And so the people start to lose heart. They're like, man, maybe we can't. Gosh, I just thought we would be farther by now. Maybe this doesn't even fit. (laughs) Maybe we we, we bit off more than we can chew. And what happens? All this doubt and discouragement starts pouring in, which is a classic strategy of Satan. Guys, this is, you understand this is spiritual warfare? These are the people of God. They're rebuilding the city of God, which is home to the temple of God. So the enemy of God is actually trying to discourage God's people from completing the job. This is inside opposition. This is satanic attack. And this is part of the Christian life too, okay? Like we have a heart-to-heart, sober talk about this. In fact, I want to share something kind of personal with you. I've actually never shared this story before because I'm like, I don't want to freak people out. So if it's your first time, you're going to get freaked out. Uh, (laughs) It is what it is. I'm I'm hoping you guys can handle this. Um, When Colleen and I uh, launched Liquid in that tavern all those years ago, um, honestly, we were like, (laughs) we didn't know what God was going to do. And all of a sudden, hundreds of people start showing up. And you remember that? It was like all this momentum and leaders were praying and volunteers are serving. And we just had this sense like God was going to do something big. We didn't know at the time. But we're like, I think we're part of, we're just along for the ride. We say that still. Um, and we were like really excited, a lot of enthusiasm. But we were just all, we we're all volunteering, right? There's no staff. We're just volunteering, doing our spare time. So we would prepare for liquid on Saturday. And so one Saturday, uh, Colin and I go to the grocery store because we had to buy supplies and snacks and stuff, uh, you know, for liquid on Sunday. And so we go to the checkout line. And in front of us is a young girl, probably around her 20s, like college student. You can see she had like a college T-shirt on. And we're waiting there, and she's right in front of us, and she goes, oh, excuse me, here come my friends. And here come her two friends with a shopping carts, two shopping carts full of alcohol, all right? Like, you know, hard lick, like Jack Daniels, tequila, the whole, like, they're going, excuse me, excuse me, and they come rolling in, and they're clearly, like, you know, stocking up for the weekend. And so uh, we, we're like, oh, okay, excuse me. You know, they're going through, and these are 20-somethings, and we're like, oh, these are kind of people we're called to reach. And they get through, and then another one comes, and they've got, like, a party ball, like a keg and everything. And the clerk, who's checking them out, goes, uh, wow, you guys got big plans for the weekend? And they're like, yeah, we're going to get lit-faced, you know. We're just going to, that was PG for you, okay? They started using very, very coarse language. It was pretty, like, I wasn't like a prude, but, like, it was like, you know, these girls were talking like, we're going to, and they start talking, we're going to be partying, we're hooking up, we're da-da-da-da-da-da, and they just start it was like really like, whoa, like if this were my daughter, like, oh, man, I just want more for their life. And so they're here, and then it was out of nowhere, this one, the one girl goes, yeah, and it's going to be awesome because Karen and her loser Christian friends aren't going to be there. And we're just standing there eavesdropping, basically. And she goes, yeah, this girl, Karen, and she like, leads like a Christian group, and the, and the clerk goes, oh, the worst. And she goes, oh, yeah, they're total prudes. They're brainless, you know, they think like the world's created in six days, you know, and it just, anyway, they're off on like some like weekend or something. So we got the whole dorm to ourselves. We're going to get killed. And I checked out and, and Colleen and I paid for our snacks and we walked to the car. I felt so discouraged. I can remember this. We got in the car in the parking lot and we pulled out and we're driving home because now we have liquid the next day. And I realized these are the exact people that God's given me a burden to reach with the gospel. 20-somethings without hope, without Christ. And so we get in the, in the car, and um, this is hard to explain, but literally we're driving home, and we're like two blocks away from our house, and I felt this, this presence in the car like a heavy blanket. 
like, like just so, like such a wave of heavy oppression. And then all of a sudden, I froze. I literally couldn't move my arms. And, and I looked at Colin. She's like, what's wrong? I said, uh, and I pulled over to the curb. I had to stop driving. I had to pull over. And I, she goes, honey, are you okay? And I tried to speak, and my lips couldn't move. You know, like when you have a dream, and you, like, want to scream, but you can't say it? And literally, I had this, it was so palpable and powerful, and then I heard a voice, that I will never forget this, that said, who the F do you think you are? This is my show. I'll never forget those words. It's 15 years ago. This is my show. And I knew it was the voice of the enemy because I don't talk like that, and my daddy doesn't talk like that. And it was very scary. It was very intimidating. And Colin just started praying for me. And you remember, right? Like, tears started coming out of the side of my eyes. And I just couldn't move. And two or three minutes passed, but it was like this heavy wave of oppression was in the car. The next day, I told my pastor, and he said, Tim, make no mistake, that was an attack. That was the voice of the enemy, enemy trying to intimidate you. And I didn't understand it fully at the time. I've had to process it over the years. But looking back, I now realize that was a satanic attack. Sometimes God speaks to you in a voice. And there are other moments when the enemy will speak to you and try to intimidate you and keep you from doing anything of significance for God and say, you stay where you are. It's too big. This is my show. You think you're going to change the party culture on campuses for Christ? I own that. Don't mess with me. They're mine. If you dare to do something great for God, the enemy opposes you because he's threatened. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren in the Bible. And what that means is if he can't hit you from the outside, he will come on the inside and he will speak to you with thoughts and voices and whispers and say, who the heck do you think you are? You're going to feed it. You're going to foster a child. Who do you think you are? You're going to help inner city kids? Who do you think you are? You're going to defend the unborn? Who do you think you are? You're just a stay-at-home mom. You're just a college student with no money. I know you got your little prayer journal and your dreams and all, but you're not worthy. You couldn't do this. You're not ready. You don't have what it takes. You didn't even pay the bills. And the enemy will sow these seeds of doubt and discouragement. And that's when the self-condemnation pour is in. And that, guys, if you let that in your heart, he will paralyze you and you will do nothing. You will waste your life with doing nothing for God. This is why you have to fight back in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says, the Spirit who lives in you is what, say that, greater than the spirit who lives in the world. In other words, the devil may be strong, but your daddy's stronger. So if you're discouraged today, how do you defeat the enemy? You do what Nehemiah did. Look at verse 14, I love this. He says, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials and the people, don't be afraid of them. Haters gonna hate. Remember who? The Lord who is great and strong. Would you say that? Remember the Lord with me. Say it. Remember the Lord. Nehemiah says, when the enemy attacks, number one, you remember the Lord who is great and awesome because it's his battle, not yours. I'm preaching to somebody today. I see some of you and you came in here discouraged. 
You may feel defeated. You may feel like you're facing something in your family or life that's too big for you. And God is saying to you, don't be afraid. Have faith and you remember the Lord. For the Jews, when, when Nehemiah said, remember the Lord, this, they would have specifically thought of certain things. He's saying, remember how the Lord has walked with you this whole way. Why are we in Jerusalem? Do you remember the Lord spoke to Moses in a burning bush? Do you remember the Lord pulled you out of slavery? Do you remember how the Lord led you out of Egypt? Do you remember how the Lord fought Pharaoh and sent 10 plagues? Do you remember how the Lord, do you remember you were caught between a rock and a hard place? Pharaoh on this side and ocean on this side and your Lord split the sea and he put you on dry ground. That's who your Lord is. So when you get discouraged, Nehemiah said, you remember key points in your journey when God fought on your behalf and I'm telling you to do the same. I, guys, I get discouraged. Some of you are like, man, you're just always on fire. I'm just human. I get depressed, I get discouraged. And it's in those moments when I sit and I remember how the Lord spoke to me on a lawnmower when I was 14 years old, mowing the outfield grass as a teenager. And I remember how the Lord said, I want you to preach my gospel in a new way. And I remember how we started this ministry with no money, how we started in, with no building in a basement. I remember how God provided a hotel ballroom 10 years ago. And when I get discouraged and overwhelmed, I'm like, man, are we going to ever complete participation? I remember how the Lord gave us Mountainside as a gift, free church out of nowhere. And they did it again with Garwood. And I remember how at Liquid at the Shore, he's, he brought the realtor for Parsippany to vacation in the same place we're holding this massive worship service. I remember, I remember how the Lord, he approved nine zoning variances. I remember how he provided the funding through generous people. And I remember the Lord's behind all of it. Amen? He's behind all of it. So at times when you feel overwhelmed and you think, you know what, I can't do this. This is too much. It's overwhelming. I'm, I, I, the strength of the labors is giving out. You remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Give him a praise. That's what you do. He's going to finish this church. He's going to finish this church. I have 110% confidence. You know why? Because my strength's in the Lord. <laughs> I'm now smart enough and old enough. No, I don't got it. He's got it. And that's what you have to do. So when you're discouraged, you take time to think back. And you, listen, you, you don't just remember the Lord. You remember to make it personal. This is the last thing Nehemiah does, last verse. When you're discouraged, you're tempted to throw in the towel, you make it personal, and you fight. You fight for your family. Look at that last part of verse 14. I stood up, I said, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord and what? Say it together. Fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives. In your homes. Nehemiah's like, if you won't fight for yourself, would you at least fight for those you love? Guys, you and I are in a life or death battle for the real lives of real people. There, is, there are people in your life, there's somebody in your life who needs you, who cannot make it without you. And when you stand up to fight for them, God says, I'm going to give you a spiritual strength you would never have on your own. So can I ask, who has God put on your heart to help? Who are you fighting for? You, you know, maybe you're here today and you're like, God, God's, God's calling me to fight for kids with special needs. I'm going to be a, a voice for people who have none. Or, or maybe he's calling you to fight for victims of human trafficking. You're like, it is not okay with me that, that, that we're in 2017 and there are still young girls being sold into sexual slavery. 
Or maybe you're a teacher and you're like, I'm going to fight for the inner city kids who are under-resourced, who nobody cares about. Or you're here and you're like, you know what, I'm going to fight for my marriage because it's broken, God's called me to rebuild it, and it is time to stand up and fight. Nehemiah says, fight for your families, your sons and your daughters. Maybe God's calling you to fight for your kids. I I understand some of you with grown kids, you're like, oh man, sore subject. They're walking away, Tim, from God. They're walking away from the faith. Do not give up. Do not surrender them to the enemy without a fight. Don't you give up praying. Don't you give up loving and persevering. Fight for your kids who will have grandkids one day. Or maybe, maybe you're like me. My burden is to fight for lost people who don't know Christ yet. See, when I get discouraged, I remember who I'm fighting for. I, I, I remember Cassandra and Hanriel and Tamika. These are three new sisters in Christ in the family of God. They were baptized at Liquid Essex County this spring. But here's the coolest part. Do you know what they were doing at Liquid Essex County? This is amazing. You know how we do Night to Shine, prom for adults with special needs? So we hosted a lot of um, residents from CPNJ, Cerebral Palsy of New Jersey, and they came with their health aides. And that's where these three women serve, actually, as health aides. And so they started coming to Liquid on Sunday mornings with the residents who are in wheelchairs. And Essex County, I'm just so proud of you guys. They love them, welcome them like family. And these women sat in a service week after week hearing the good news about Jesus Christ and grace, the forgiveness of God. And all three of these health aides felt compelled to publicly declare their faith in Christ and get baptized. Praise God. I need you to love that. It doesn't get more personal than that. I love that story. I love how God works. So you see, I get discouraged. I get tired. I get overwhelmed. But then I think of Cassandra and Henriel and Tamika and my three sisters and all those who don't know Christ and it inspires me to fight on. So can I ask, who are you fighting for? I want you to get a mental picture of one person, one name, one face, somebody in your life who God's put in your heart and you're like, they need to know the love of Christ. I understand you may get tired. Family members, well-meaning friends may discourage or criticize you, but don't ever give up. Fight for your families, your sons, your daughters. It's like the Braveheart moment, you know? Never forget, guys, our church has never been about a building. It's about building people up, amen? Building up their faith in Christ. That's why we pray. This is why we persevere like lives depend on it, because they do. These boards that we painted for the walls of a church, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing today. Before we actually put them up and nail them to the walls of our broadcast campus, I'm going to ask you to write the name of one person who God has called you to fight for. I'm going to write the name of someone in my life who's struggling with depression. We're going to call you up, and we're going to give you a red sharpie because we know they're close to your heart. And I want you to write their first name on this board. You know why? Because we're building this church for them. This church is not for us, amen? This is for them. This is what we're doing it for. And what we're going to do is, in a couple weeks, we're going to nail these boards to the wall of our new church. And everyone will see the stain on the outside, but you and I will know. On the inside are the names of people precious to God. Family and friends and brothers and sisters and wives and husbands who the Lord has put on your heart. And 10 years from now, you and I will look back and we'll remember what the Lord did on their behalf. Amen? Amen. Who God call you to fight for? Father God, I pray right now, feel your spirit. Thank you, Lord. 
I'm thinking right now of the names and faces you're putting into the hearts and minds of your people. Father God, we may walk in today and we're feeling discouraged. We're feeling tired. We're feeling weak. But Lord, you are strong. The Lord is great. The Lord is awesome. God, we remember right now how you have provided for us through the gift of Jesus Christ. You have protected us, Father, by his name and his blood. And you have given us everything we need to defeat the enemy. But God, we need your Holy Spirit. We can't do this ourselves. We can only be bold and courageous as you pour your spirit into and through us. And so God, as we write these names, I pray that they will be etched on our hearts. We bring them to you as a prayer now. We're building this house for them. And so God, I ask that you would intercede. I ask that there'd be names of people who are having broken marriages but God, you're going to resurrect those dead marriages. I ask for generations yet unborn who will be raised to be world-changing leaders in their generation after we're gone. Lord, I thank you. We thank you that we are never without hope when we get on our knees and fight. And so we do that now. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.